Welcome to Inside Independent Publishing with IBPA. I'm your host, Christopher Locke. I'm also the IBPA Director of Membership and Member Services. Okay, so today is a special episode, my friends, and it's a sad one. IBPA CEO Angela Bull is moving on to a new opportunity after November 30th, 2022, as the new CEO of Firebrand Technologies. So I wanted to take the time to chat with Angela about the highlights of her time at IBPA, discuss some of the challenges facing independent publishers right now, and maybe solve some of those problems. Maybe all of them. I don't know. It'll be exciting. We'll find out. All right. Welcome, Angela. Thanks, Christopher. It is sad. It is sad to be here, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad to be here, too. That would be terrible if literally you just started crying right now. I'd be like, but, uh-oh, this is not a good start. Not ready yet. We've got, we still have a little bit of time, yeah. Okay. Um, and by the way, I know that you are technically still my boss. So at any point in this interview, you could just be like, you're fired. And I'm like, oh, but can we finish the interview at least? Um, just a little while longer. <laughs> okay. So there are a lot of things I want to discuss. Um, Amazon distribution, get excited for all those topics. Um, uh, but I want to start by going down memory lane. Okay, so you started at IBPA nine years ago, and I thought it'd be kind of fun uh, to find out, are there any things during that time, highlights, any projects that you started or that you thought really thrived as CEO that you're, you're really proud of? Nine years ago, um, I mean, IBPA has done a ton of things in the past nine years. I think, you know, coming right into the position, um, I was a very young CEO, and uh, we had, and the association was in a bit of a turning point, I think, for itself. I mean, Jan Nathan, who was the founder of the organization and who had run it um, almost exclusively for 25, 30 years, um, you know, she had passed and IBPA was kind of trying to refine its feet and figure out what kind of an organization did it want to be. Um, and that was an interesting time. And, and I think so I think coming right into the job, what was some, what were some interesting things that we did was to really talk about who we were, who we wanted to be, what kind of an organization did we think would work well um, in the current environment. And, you know, we continue to have those conversations every day. Nothing stays static. Um, so we did, a, we did a lot of that. We did a lot of foundation setting, some structuring, you know, our staff is a lot bigger than it was back then. So we had to do um, some things that would enable us to grow in that way. Um, our membership database, we completely changed that. We completely changed our all the infrastructure for the organization. So there was a lot of like stuff that was in the guts that I guess a lot of members wouldn't have seen. Um, that was really about us making it a, a stronger association that could just, you know, that was a good foundation to stand on and to build, to build things on. Yeah. And also like, uh, I don't think any of the committees like existed, right? Did you, you were the one who kind of put those in place, right? That's true. Wow. Yeah. You forget nine years is a long time. But yeah, when I started, we had always have had a board of directors and there were always the working groups that would kind of kick out of the board of directors. Um, but we never had standing committees that any member could become involved in. That was definitely new. Um, and now, as you know, we've got an advocacy committee, editorial advisory committee. Um, we have a member benefits committee and a DEI committee. And the board still does kick out a bunch of working groups as well. So if there's some more strategic level thing that there is a more strategic level thing that the board needs to work on um they'll kick out working groups and they'll do that work tactically together um but yeah and then that's i think very important for a membership organization there needs to be places where the membership itself can plug in and can uh, to help affect change and to drive the mission forward so yeah that was we did that yeah we launched committees well, and also, like you were saying, what's great about that is it's made up of members and it's these aren't the board of directors. These are people that just want to be, uh, you know, 
want to be part of IBPA, want to feel connected. And what I love is that they help create the direction of IBPA. I mean, that's that's like a huge deal to, to yeah. be a member and then say, here's what I think you all are going to do as an organization. And then we're like, thank you. We will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, there there's that is why a membership association exists, right? Uh, to serve the members and the members should be um, informing what kind of service we give, you know, and, and even to the point of the members elect the officers of the board, I mean, or the board directors. So yeah, everything needs to, you know, kind of roll up from the membership and what the membership thinks that they want. Yeah. And that's something since I started that uh, absolutely is the case is that we like we we take a lot of feedback from members and we're always trying to adjust the organization and improve it so that it's the best for them i mean not just creating new you know like member benefits but like just any feedback they have we're always like what's the best for members um so uh, but i do want to go back to my first question though so uh but i didn't answer it i did a bad job right no no but i'm interested because uh, is there anything that stands out to you where you're like I mean, maybe you don't want to like feel like you're, you know, like gloating or something, but like, obviously you've helped change the course of IBPA. So, um, you know, of course you helped create the committees, but you know, I don't think like a publishing university is something that you're like, okay, under my reign, um, I, that was something where I'm like, I'm really proud that that. Yeah. That is something that you kind of want someone else to talk about. Right. I see. What do I know? But I think, you know, some of the things that I've seen that I've really enjoyed, um, sea Blossom was community at IBPA, and it's always been a place where community was important. But I think that we made a lot of deliberate strides to talk about how, as a staff, and who who we are at IBPA at the admin side, we're creating a container. So I always use that metaphor a lot with everybody that we we can create space for the membership to come into, and then they make that space look any way that they want. They shape the space, but without the space itself, without having the you know the four walls. And maybe even a roof. Um, there's no place for them to gather. There's no rails, you know, for them. So I think I'm very proud of the way that we've been able to do that. And it does lean into publishing university, which has grown substantially, and the Benjamin Franklin Award Program, which has also grown, which you know because you help pack all the books. That uh-huh. we ship out. <laughs> Physically, I know it's grown. Physically, my, can... I have bigger muscles now because yeah. of it. Yeah, lots and lots of books are packed and shipped out. Um, so I think, yeah, it, in the way that we kind of leaned into what it, what IVPA is as a community. And again, it's kind of like nuts and bolts stuff, but we did a lot of work on our mission and vision and our core values mm-hmm. um, and really not just putting that work on paper, but then circulating that work and evangelizing that work and um, making sure that everybody understood what we meant by that. So, you know, what we mean by our core values and how we stand by them. I mean, I think that kind of cultural work can be difficult to do because it's not, you know, not everybody's always paying attention or really kind of trying to understand uh, where the heart of an association comes from. So I was, yeah, I'm proud of that work too. Well, we also try to keep the heart hidden because uh, we don't want someone to come in and stab it. It's like a dragon where you're like the one scale that they can get to. Uh Yeah, Um. that's exactly right. We do. (laughs) Deliver it. Um, so you mentioned that you were a young CEO. I think child prodigy is yeah. the, the term that we use. Um, I felt young. Maybe I wasn't as young as I, you know, but I certainly <laughs> felt like I, I was a little deer in headlights. Yeah, a little bit. 
Uh, well, so on that note, I wanted to see, you know, was there anything that in these time that, you know, what, like, so like, let's think of you, the Angela, when you were starting, when you were like, here's what is going to happen. Uh, how did it turn out where you're like, and that's exactly what I thought? Or were there <laughs> surprises along the way? You were like, I mean, I'm sure the pandemic is, you know, one of them. Um, sure. But what along the way was like, kind of like a big surprise? Well, I mean, I, I'm thinking of a moment which isn't quite doesn't quite answer your question. So I think I'll spend the next 20 minutes just not quite answering. That's your question. awesome. I love That's it. Okay. <laughs> but you know, I mean, when I so when I think about what I mean by coming and being a young CEO, I think about like mentors I had at the time and accountability kind of questions and things. And that always is going to hit any job that you have. But I, I just remember sitting at one dinner and being like, "Wow, I don't this. I don't know how to crack this. This is a big." issue that's coming through. This is a, was probably a complaint or, or something that was coming down that felt really consequential. And I just remember my mentor across the table being like, yeah, I don't know either. Yeah. Good luck with that. That's going to be <laughs> your thing to figure out. Uh-huh. And that I don't know. I just walked away from that with this sense of like, at some point, absolutely where the buck stops and what, what you have to figure out and what you have to do. And um, there is no pushing aside or having someone else figure out issues and problems. So that was a big, that, that was, that was something that I really kind of came through this experience. Um, but what could I have, like, I couldn't have imagined half of the things like, you know, building up through the board and building up committees and building up the university, um, you know, staff changes that have occurred over the years. That was, you know, it's always, um, that's always something to kind of work through and work with. Um, the rise of self-publishing authors and kind of legitimacy of that space, the rise mm. of hybrid publishing and the legitimacy of that space. So IVPA having always been an umbrella where you could be here regardless of your business model and we would um, have benefit for you, I think is very forward looking and very forward thinking because now we're in the world where the lines are blurring between different business models and, and where independent publishers fall. So I'm happy to see it. I don't think things need to be super rigid. Um, so, yeah, that's that's another interesting thing that's come through. Well, yeah, and on that note, that helping to define those things so that because there is a stigma to like self-published authors um, and that books aren't as good um, and that same thing with hybrid publishers, that, there's just been big controversy about whether or not they're legitimate. Um, so IBPA, and, and by the way, both of those things do occur in some ways. So for author publishers, IBPA's job is to try to help everyone rise to the level of the, the big publishers. Um, and then same thing with hybrid publishers. We created the IBPA hybrid publisher criteria so that everyone sees, okay, here's what a legitimate hybrid publisher looks like. Um, and so, and then hopefully people that come into our membership see those things and they've learned from them. And if maybe they weren't following all of those things, now uh, we help them do that because it only benefits the space for all of us. Is everyone is uh, working at the, the, the highest level that they can. Yeah. A rising tide lifts all ships kind of that's the falls in there. Yeah. And by the way, there are also some really poorly published books <laughs> across every business model. Yeah. So it just, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Well, so, um, a lot of our members are independent publishers and they, they run companies. Um, they have staffs and um, they have to make choices for the company about how they're going to stay afloat. Uh, so, you know, you're a boss, you have staff and you run this company to keep it stay afloat. So I wanted to see if 
if you have any like words of wisdom, things that as a boss, you're like, okay, this is what worked well for me. Um, and hopefully mm -hmm. that, that's something they can learn from. Well, I mean, two things popped immediately to mind. The first is the people. Um, this is, it's always about the people and will always be about the people and it staff, of course, and getting the best people you can find to sit in the seats and to motivate, try to motivate them in a way that makes sense to them. So one size doesn't fit all when you're dealing with people, everybody has different things that resonate with them and different wants and needs and lives and desires. Um, so you can't do anything without the, your people. Um, but, you know, and then with IVPA, it extends beyond. It's it's also the volunteer leaders. It's also the membership. It's also the partners that we work with. And all of these things, you know, is the, yes, it's companies, but they're companies run by people. So the more you can really try to understand where people are coming from and treat everybody with as much empathy as you can. And I think that makes a big difference. Um, and the other is finances. <laughs> as boring as that is like we're a nonprofit and uh it's you, you know this too but everything is counted and accounted for and there really isn't a lot of we don't wiggle around a lot in our budgets if we know we can do something we do it and if we can't we really can't and we try to be as clean as we possibly can in order to just keep building and building and building on our foundation so being really well, clean well, with your accounting, yeah. Yeah, I, well, sometimes you're like, Chris, I think you used two pens last yeah. month. That's going to be coming out of your salary. <laughs> you ordered the thick <laughs> printer paper. We used the thin printer paper. Literally, it's so uh, thin you can see through it. And I'm like, yeah. but are you sure, Chris, we're saving money. Saving money. I do. He's not even like for our <laughs> podcast. Like, I know that sounds like that can't possibly be true. But um, every year at the end, I'm, I know I send an email that's like, we're out of supply. What is it called? Uh, the office. Order. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The office <laughs> budget. Office supplies. But yeah. We freeze the office supply budget. Like to that level of like, you know, when you got to freeze the office supply budget, you got to freeze it. Um, yeah. And well, I think we do every year. It's when we run out of toilet paper that I'm like, <laughs> can we please just we bring it from home? You have some at home. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, let me, uh, let me also say, I mean, um, as a, a boss, you know, some things that have worked really well, if you want some, some compliments, um, to help yeah. other people out. Uh, I think, you know, um, having someone that you can always turn to, uh, and feel like they got your back, uh, is incredibly helpful. So anytime I have any type of project where it's like, like I have to do like the a proposal for the board, which can be overwhelming, um, because, it's like I'm a writer, but like professional writing in terms of like technical, all that. So anyway, I always knew I could come to you and you would help, you know, make it better and give me feedback. So um, having an approachable um, boss is really helpful. Um, awesome. Uh, and then also uh, having someone who trusts that you'll get the job done without like breathing down your throat. Like you're someone who you just, I, I just appreciate how much you, you know, you, you give us a, a lot of work for <laughs> to do. There's a lot to do. There's, there's never, yeah. uh, I'm never like, hey, Angela, real quick, I don't know what to do today. Um, but <laughs> hopefully so. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. <laughs> but um, you, you, but then you're like, here's the deadline. And then you trust that, you know, we'll, we'll get it done. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Um, Good staff. You guys are, I mean, you do it. That's, I think that stuff is earned. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's another world in which it's not possible to just kind of let it flow. But I mean, you guys earned that 
space for yourselves because you do get it done. You just, you really do. Now, now we're just complimenting the IBPA staff. This is the 30 minute podcast on IBPA staff. No, real quick though. What else is good about us? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So I, but conversely, I did want to see what have you learned about things that uh, as running a company and as a a boss of the staff, like what, is there anything you've learned that didn't work so well? And you're like, oh, I got a course correct. Um, that's something that, you know, so that others out there who run businesses and are CEOs and such can possibly avoid. Yeah, I mean, I I think the, the biggest challenges that I've hit that have felt like course corrected is needed has to do with not communicating as transparently as possible or as necessary even or even more transparently than you might even think necessary. I think that, you know, whenever there's been misunderstandings or there's, you know, miscommunications and stuff, it's because the time in front of that wasn't given in order to kind of bring all parties in and communicate really, really, really well. Mm. So I think, and I do kind of think that is a misstep when you're not considering how much time it's going to take to really bring everybody on board and that amount of onboarding is necessary in order for any project to run really smoothly. There's a lot of people, and even dis, if you will, sometimes I, I hear some people say, well, they're a disinterested party. It's not really in their purview. They don't really need to understand all of this and everything. And I think that can is true. But also when you have a company where the everyone and all the employees are interested and involved and kind of want to know these things and stay connected to, it's good to allow for that and to keep everybody looped, um, not start to silo things too, too much because you never know when that person over there who's, of course, a little disinterested, not necessarily in their purview on this project, but they're going to have an idea that comes from their point of view and the stuff that they're working on that's going to make it better. So yeah, my missteps probably came through not understanding that really well for a while and yeah, and not over communicating. Well, something I really appreciate is that, like, for example, on the staff, we go to the board meetings. Um, So being in there in that room where they are making decisions that are going to affect our jobs, our daily lives at work uh, is really helpful because then it's not like you have a board meeting as the boss and then you come back and go, here's what everyone's doing that was decided for you. You know, at least we have that heads up like, okay, here was the thinking and why they want us to do that. So I, I appreciate that. And that's Certainly. I mean, I worked at, you know, a lot of different companies and um, like when I worked at like NBC, like I didn't go to the NBC, you know, board (laughs) meetings. Um, Although I should have, they should have allowed me as a production assistant. Somebody should make a call. Seems imperative. Um, Okay. So we are talking about the IBPA community and I did want to say like one of the the things that makes IBPA strong is this community. Um, So I wanted to see, can you give members, like how can they get involved? Like through IBPA, what are the things they can do to, um, you know, become more part of that community? Yeah. Um, Well, everyone's got different amounts of time in their day, you know, so I think coming, coming to terms with what's how much time you have, because there's little ways. I, I don't think that our, for example, I don't think that our educational opportunities are are as um, taken advantage of as they could be. And that really is a way that you can not just absorb, but contribute. Um, because all of our webinars are going to have an extra half hour where you can sit and talk to the people that were also there and you can share your learnings and your understandings. Um, you host a member roundtable monthly where people can, you know, log in. Maybe the first one, you're just a little black Zoom box, you know, and you don't feel comfortable turning your camera on. But I think over time, you start to contribute and talk. 
Um, those types of spaces are also really interesting spaces for seeing how community leaders rise up organically through those spaces. So in member roundtables, as people come in and start talking, how much you know are they contributing in terms of just talking through their stuff or how much are they contributing in terms of helping others and bringing out points of conversation? Um, so that, you know, all the, all of the online stuff, we also do member benefit webinars where you can learn things I think is a great way to start because you can plug in and you can be passive if you'd like, but then over time you can start to move in and engage in different ways through those platforms. Um, you can also be a judge for our Benjamin Franklin award program. If you have the expertise, that's a big program. And there's a lot, I think we have 170 or 180 volunteers that move through that program. And you get to read free books. And you get a big box of free books that Christopher lovingly packs for you <laughs> individually. Huh? Maybe there's some um, of my blood on some of those boxes. <laughs> yeah, mm. it's, a, it's, quite a, it's quite an accomplishment. Uh, you can do the conference. You could be a thought leader at conference. Uh, people volunteer to, to come and speak at Publishing University every year. You could apply for a committee seat. As Christopher said, we opened these up over the past nine years as a place for members to directly impact. My gosh, you could write for the magazine, our bi-monthly magazine. You could write an article and uh, share and contribute that way. You could, at some level, apply for the board of directors if you feel like you have a point of view that you wanted to involve in a strategic way across the association. You could apply for a seat on the board. So, I, I mean, I honestly do think there's tons of different ways. It just kind of depends on, I guess, how shy you might be. <laughs> so, where do you want to kind of plug in and then how much time you have? And Yeah. Yeah, and like you were saying, what the great thing about all those is that you are learning. Like as someone who's in publishing, with all of those, it's making you a better publisher. And in in on that note, like being connected to other publishers, being able to reach out to them with questions and say, "Hey, I'm 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 trying to land distribution, or uh, I'm trying to uh, market this book, but it's kind of tricky." Uh, you know, all these things. Like the more people that you're connected to, only it's only going to be better for you as a publisher. So. Um, I, like you said, I understand 100% people are very busy, um, but I think we should choose things that we know are going to be uh, helpful for us, um, you know, to, to build our business and not think of like, like our webinars, like you were saying, is like, oh, I'm just going to be sitting there, you know, like learning this thing. It's like, no, no, our, the webinars are live, like you interact. Uh, and, and so you can ask yeah. a question about the subject. Yeah, yeah. So when the announcement came that uh, you were leaving IBPA, um, I know there were some members who, you know, because you have been such a, a huge part of IBPA and its success, they were like, what's going to happen with IBPA? And they were concerned. Uh, so this is a leading question, but can you tell us uh, why IBPA is going to continue to thrive and, and be great? <laughs> well, I want to say that's actually it wasn't really my experience so much. Uh, maybe they emailed you. And uh, that happened, but I didn't get too much of a concern. I think because there, we had a really long runway in this announcement, at least six months or so, in order to for the board of directors to hire a CEO, to put together a task force, to hire an executive search firm, and to interview many, many people for the position. There was a long runway. It wasn't like a turnover of immediacy. Mm -hmm. Wow, maybe more people should have emailed me and said how sad they were and how upset. <laughs> well, <laughs> like people were like, 
for me, I'm like, oh yeah, right. You're like, most people were like, hey, we're good. Thanks for leaving. No problem. Sounds great. Let me know when you get there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, for me, I'm like, um, I'm still here. Like the staff is still, they're like, Christopher, that brings me no comfort. I'm like, oh, all right. Um, But yeah, I mean, I mean, you are absolutely a huge part of the success of IBPA, but you've also created this infrastructure that will keep it a success. And, um, and uh, the staff, I mean, like you were saying, I mean, I I am so grateful to be working with this group of people. So yeah, um, I I do think if the question is, how is it going to, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think there's any question that the, there's continuity at basically all levels and uh, the new CEO coming in is a, uh, it's going to benefit from that, but also IBPA is going to benefit from her. Um, Andrea Fleck Nesbitt has a great deal of experience in the industry. And to be completely honest and candid, which is, you know, I'm not telling tales out of class experience I didn't have. So, you know, I've no, I didn't come into this job having worked for an independent publisher or a trade publisher or, or Ingram, which is all experience that Andrea is going to bring into the space. And I think that's only going to make the decisions sounder you know, more rooted in, in real time, <laughs> which is on the flip side of that makes my decision sound unsound and rooted out of time. But, you know, I, you know, she's going to bring a lot into the space too. And I think the foundation that she'll find will be strong and, and IBPA will be so much better. I mean, it's going to be really great what's going to happen in the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I would do, there are some kind of big issues that always hit indie publishers. So one is Amazon, um, so I, before you lay, leave, I wanted to have you impart your wisdom. Um, so it's, it's this huge juggernaut and it's not going away and, and people go there to buy books. They have the fair share of, of book sales. And, uh, but our indie publishers do email us sometimes with really big issues such as Amazon saying, Hey, we're taking your ability to publish books down because you've violated copyright. And the member's like, what are you talking about? These are my books. And then not being able to get in touch with anyone there. So I just wanted to see, like, with issues like that, like, I mean, is there any hope? Like, I mean, it's just, it seems so difficult because they, the problem is it feels like they don't, like, even if they are like, look, I get it. They don't want people, you know, uh, infringing on copyright and neither do our publishers, but to not let someone then prove, hey, we are a legitimate publisher and these are our books, that's the problem. Yeah. Well, there's a lot baked into that. And, and in, even in that one particular instance, and I, so I, but I do feel compelled to say in that one particular instance, which a lot of our listeners might acknowledge, it might have hit them. They might have had their content taken down for copyright infringement. And as you said, the, the reason for that has merit. There is a lot of copyright infringement happening, and a lot of that is happening through the POD systems because it's just easier for people to infringe copyright through the POD systems. So they are trying. That's it, it's an effort to crack down on that, and they probably swung the pendulum way too far and just you know like dropped a house on a fly kind of a concept in order to quote start to fix this problem. That is a legitimate problem, and I will say that. At the beginning, it was seemed very hard for people to get their work reinstated, but it's starting to become easier as it moves through. So I think we just are we hit an inflection point on that particular issue, and I would hope to see that that starts to even itself out as things do, as the Amazon continues to address the problem of counterfeit and copyright infringement and stuff. Um, it, it's too bad people get caught up in that, 
Um, but hopefully, again, it becomes easier. Uh, I'm not going to be able to solve the problem of Amazon in like my life. Oh, great. I never got there. That was <laughs> use that on the table for Andrea. But I will echo what is just common knowledge, which is that we need different uh, sales channels. We need different direct-to-consumer sales channels. That's, you know, bookshop.org was a great push in during pandemic times to give some different to differentiate in some way. Uh, but direct to consumer sales, direct to consumer by the publisher really enabled direct to consumer sales is still not something our industry has figured out how to engage with yet. And I think we need to look to that. I don't think we should secede. Is that the right word? Secede all of the land. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Amazon, like it is great what it has done in terms of enabling independent publishers to enter the marketplace. And we can always respect and admire that aspect of what they've done, but we need other players here and we, it, it can't all ride there. So that's not an answer. It's an acknowledgement. And, and lots of different pockets of the publishing industry are thinking about people who are you know smarter than me, which isn't that hard, um, are thinking about this and trying to figure out what, how can we disintermediate some of that. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I just wanted to get your thoughts. I mean, we've talked about it many times. I know our members, it's just something that uh, I know our members are dealing with and, um, and indie publishers in general. Um, and it's a, a huge headache. Um, I, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. You got um, to sell there. You got to be available. Yeah. The other, uh, one of the other big issues is traditional distribution, uh, landing it. And um, so it's this kind of like, you know, catch 22 where like, any publishers, like they're like, look, to get to the next level, they want to be able to get into, you know, Target and Walmart and Barnes and Noble, all these, you know, big places. Um, but a lot of times, these uh, sales teams are the ones that have those connections. And until you get traditional distribution, you can't, you know, get into those stores. But then the traditional distribution uh, teams probably won't pick you up unless you have proof that you will do well. And they're like, well, what am I supposed to do? Um, so, uh, this is another thing our members have to deal with a lot. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, maybe this model needs to just change, um, or if you think it's working as is, but then maybe they need to tweak how they accept people. Like what, what are your thoughts about traditional distribution? Right. Well, I think you nailed it. I mean, you described the catch 22, the chicken and egg issue. I think, um, in order to solve a problem, as you described it, is you do you have to do the work as a publisher to be interesting to these trade sales channels first. It it is never going to be the distributor that makes you interesting to these sales channels. It's not like you know they're, they, if there if there was a lever lever you could pull and then you're available. You know you got the traditional distribution contract and then all of a sudden they're going to order from you. It doesn't work that way. It has to be you know pulled. So. If you want to be in these brick and mortar spaces, if that's part of your business plan, uh, there's work for you to do as a publisher to make yourself interesting to these places. And then once that happens, you will become interesting to a traditional distributor, not the other way around. But, you know, I don't I don't know how to get around that and whether or not that means like we need to blow up the traditional distribution landscape and how books are sold in brick and mortar spaces. I don't actually know if that's possible, because there is always going to be limited space at a brick and mortar location, they're always going to want somebody to help them understand what's good 
invented to put into that space because a bookseller can't possibly do that all on their own. So some that's what sales, if sales channels are good, that's what they're good for is to help kind of move the right content through. It depends on your marketing plans and it depends on a lot of other things that'll happen. I just always wonder for an indie publisher particularly, why? I mean, if there's a reason they want to be in the brick and mortar and that reason is the brick and mortars really want them, then it makes sense to kind of go there. But most people sell most most of the content online anyway. So maybe you don't need traditional distribution. Maybe you need great wholesale distribution. You need to be available if they want it, but you need to focus on direct to consumer and getting them to order online. It might be one way to go about it. Yeah, I 100% agree. I do think that there's this... It's almost like until my books are in bookstores, I haven't succeeded concept. And the truth is, like you said, you can make just you can do just fine financially. And also you focusing your efforts on selling direct to consumers uh, would be a much better use of your time than banging your head against the wall, trying to get a bookstore to carry your book. And they're like, you're not a good fit for us. Um, so yeah, I, I 100% agree. So I think it is also the mindset of some publishers too, of just not f- understanding they don't have to get into bookstores to be successful. Because mm-hmm. that also is the, an old kind of model that they're they're kind of looking at. But look, I, yeah. I get it. I mean, I did the same thing when my books first came out. I was like, oh, man, I can't wait to get into bookstores. And then at some point I was like, oh, what? As long as people are buying my books, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you are moving to CEO at Firebrand Technologies. So, uh, and by the way, congratulations. I'm excited for you. So, uh, I wanted to ask about Firebrand, um, because you, Firebrand creates technology for publishers. So, um, and this is, uh, you know, a show about any publishers and publishing. So I wanted to see, like, can you just tell us about what are some of the things that, you know, Firebrand, you know, has that can help publishers grow their businesses? Yeah, it's all, it, it was a company founded on building efficiencies for publishers, you know, and it was one of the very first um, title management systems, which I can define if you'd like, but also just wanted to acknowledge that, that it's the Firebrand group is the umbrella company because uh, Firebrand Technologies is just one part of it. And that's the part that develops title management, um, which is the software that a lot of publishers and distributors use to handle their metadata speaking super simplistically but you know to handle ingest their metadata and send that metadata uh, in the form of onyx out into the world to the trading partners Um, it does a lot of other things it can take the content from acquisition and creating you know what all the paperwork and and documents that are needed from there all the way through Um, but yeah so firebrand group can help with title management and all the things that it means to manage a title. They also do own NetGalley, which IBP has a great partnership with. And um, the, under that umbrella too is a company called Supadoo, which works on uh, publisher websites. Um, and how it will, I think, be one of the linchpins to direct-to-consumer sales for publishers. Um, they're very, they've got some really interesting work in that space that they're starting to starting to release and to think about. Um, so yeah, I, I, there's Firebrand is going through this transition. There's a lot that I'll need to learn about what the company, you know, what's the potential for the company, but it has been one that has brought efficiencies to publishers for over 30 years. And I think in the next phase of its evolution, it will also be a company that helps publishers make money on helps publishers actually sell books, not just organize all the things that they need to organize related 
to the book, um, but also sell them at the end of the day. I've heard that making money is really fun. So. I heard it was imperative. <laughs> yeah. So oh. I think, yeah. Am I supposed to no. be paying rent here? I thought squatting <laughs> was fine. That's why they keep knocking at my door. That's weird. It's interesting. I mean, being more efficient is a way to make money, obviously. I mean, that's kind of a, that's, that's what happens when you become more efficient, you have more time. But yeah, if you could actually also then make more money, that would be great. Two sides of a coin. Um, so as we run down on time here, um, I do also want to give you this space, uh, and if there's anything you wanted to say to any publishers or to just our members, um, words of encouragement, you know, whatever, uh, you want to say, uh, because, um, this is, this is the space to possibly do it unless you're just like, I'm good. Good luck, everyone. Good luck, everyone. <laughs> I, it's hard to know what to say. Like, I'd still have a, I still have a month. You know, so I think that there's going to be some space for me to really come to terms with the decision. But IBPA has been, and I mean, it's been a humongous part of my life. So every single person that I, you know, that I've been in work with and in service to and for and with, I think, um, I don't even know what to say about it. I just think it's going to be a big emotional thing at some point. Right now, I'm just like, how do we get everybody organized so that everything is really, really successful. And then I'll, I'll figure out what the rest is, but it's, there's nothing better than joining a community of like-minded people and, you know, with an eye towards service, making it work as best you can. So it's been great. Yeah. Uh, we are recording this at the beginning of November for everyone, yeah. um, but uh, we're going to be airing this at the end of November. So when people oh. are hearing this, they're going to be like, Oh, you have another month? No. Yeah, no. Then I'll be then I'll be done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. November thirtieth is the last day, and December first, um, you you, I, you won't even be answering my calls anymore. Like that. I. I <laughs> yeah. It's fine. I get it. I'll be done. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so I thought about like having a surprise guest on like Journey because I know how much you like them. Like um, Journey. You do. Wouldn't you love it yeah. if immediately the band members came it behind me? It would be me? amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, then they'd be at my house, and then you'd be like, "What? You, the surprise guest is just then I get to hang out with them." <laughs> uh, so thanks. Um, but it, look, I, I wanted to end with a, a story, if we can. This is about storytelling. Um, it's about a, a lost young man named Christopher Locke. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, uh, like, uh, like almost four or five, actually, only like ten years ago, like 2012. I had worked in TV for 10 years and was unhappy. Uh, I felt creatively stifled. So I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave and follow my dreams. Uh, I'm going to write novels. So I left and uh, I then wrote my first novel and, and I chose the route to go uh, self-publishing as we talk about author publishers. And it was incredibly fulfilling. I loved it. Um, but very quickly, I learned the hard lesson that you do not make like any money as an author. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know why I didn't do research. I just had these starry, you know, like visions. And I was like, this is going to be international bestseller. And I'm going to be, uh, you know, as popular and as, you know, as like Stephen King, I'll be great. Um, so quickly, I was like, I got to, I got to get a job because we were talking about apparently money is important. Yeah. Um, and uh, when I started looking, um, it was a struggle. I just couldn't find work. I well, I'll change that answer. I found work, but it was things that sucked my soul out. I hated the jobs; they weren't anywhere near what I wanted to do. I wanted to now work in publishing, and I lived in LA, and that is not the land of publishing. New York is. 
um, I was miserable. I felt honestly worthless um, because no one was hiring me and it was a really dark time in my life. Um, but I came across an ad for an admin assistant at IBPA and I applied and I didn't get the job. It was already taken. <laughs> so I was like, okay. But uh, my then wife, my ex now, uh, she was like, you should meet with the CEO just to do an informational. So I, you and I had a phone conversation and afterward I was like, well, she's really cool. Too bad that didn't work out. Um, and another year went by of misery, not finding jobs I liked. It's very miserable. <laughs> um, and I saw an ad for an internship and I was like, okay, I'm like 40 years old. I'm not in college. Are they even going to hire me as an intern? They're going to be like, really? Come on. But I applied <laughs> and you, Pat, I emailed you and was like, hey, just please. I think I was, be I begged. I met with Terry and he hired me as the intern and I was ecstatic because I met with you all and I was like, oh, this is the world I want to be in. Um, the staff is so supportive and it also is the world of publishing. And every day I was, as the intern, was learning things. And then the job of admin assistant opened up again and I got that job. Um, and I just wanted to take the time to thank you because ever since then, like you've been giving me opportunities. Um, IBPA, I, I truly felt, um, I just, you, you, we go through life thinking we have talent, and, but if nobody's acknowledging that, at some point you're like, I guess I, guess I don't. You, know, you start to believe yeah. it. It's demoralizing. Uh, so you have to have someone who believes in you. And you believed in me. And you continue to give me opportunities here. And I just am forever grateful to you for helping to turn my life around and giving me the opportunity to thrive. Um, it's just, it's, it's been a joy working at IBPA. I, I love it. And, um, I know you're moving on, but you, you really helped change my life. And I just wanted to take the time to thank you for that. That's awesome. There's um, so much in there too, Christopher. Like, I hope that, I hope that they send that to college classes. Like, yes, of course there were opportunities, but I mean, you did make them yourself. I mean, you, you, you took the intern, you didn't get the job at the assistant level. You took the internship <laughs> job, yeah. you know, and you made yeah. the space and then you made yourself somebody who is now the director of membership and member services, you know, that's far from an intern and that's over the course of just a couple of years. And because you connected into it. Um, yeah, it's been, yeah, everyone should, should find something in what you've done. I think, and similarly do it because you're dogged, I would say. You were dogged. I was like, uh, I'm not giving up no matter what. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you're like, all right, God, yeah. this guy, I don't think he's going away. <laughs> I guess we're uh, going to give him a job. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just thank you. And and I, I want, I mean, for me, from everybody at IBPA, like, I'm excited for you. Like, I, I think it's going to be an amazing opportunity. And I, you deserve all the success in the world. And I just, I, with all that you've done for IBPA, I can foresee all of that uh, at, at Firebrand. I, I think it's going to be great. Um, and I, I, and they're lucky. They're lucky to have you. I hope so. I'm looking forward to it and I will not disappear. So we'll stay, we'll all stay in touch. The whole IBPA community. I, I'm willing to bet this is the last time you'll ever talk to me. This is <laughs> this is the conversation, everyone. Like, would, literally, you have a month left when we're recording this. That you're you're like we're cutting it off now. <laughs> gotta, I gotta wean him off of <laughs> interacting with me. I'm like, that's very weird. She never emails me back anymore. Um, 
All right. Well, um, that is our episode. Um, and I hope everyone uh, who is listening uh, enjoyed and uh, learned something. Um, I hope everyone uh, who's not a member yet who's listening to this, please go to the IBPA website, ibpa-online.org, uh, sign up. Um, as you heard in this episode, can be very helpful. And there's even opportunities to make some money, apparently. So that's good. Um, and subscribe to this podcast. We have new episodes last Thursday of every month. And again, Angela, thank you. Normally I'm saying thank you at the end of the episode, like, you know, all right, goodbye. But like, just thank you for everything you've done for IBPA. Been great. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Christopher.